It's Monday, July 16th, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump is in Helsinki, Finland, for another big meeting with a world leader, Vladimir Putin. The president said he is going into the meeting with low expectations. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss the meeting and whether the elephant in the room will be discussed, the Justice Department's indictment of 12 Russian intelligence agents for attempting to influence the 2016 presidential election. Next, as more people are cutting the cord to traditional cable and satellite services for cheaper streaming options, we are seeing increasing prices in those very same services. Rob Pegararo, tech writer for USA Today Tech, joins us to talk about all the options we have and what we can do to keep costs down. Finally, the trend among companies to reduce their environmental impact keeps growing. The latest company to make a move is co-working giant WeWork, which offers a range of office and workspaces for small companies. My producer Miranda joins us to talk about how they are helping the environment by no longer serving meat at employee events or reimbursing their employees for meals that include red meat, poultry, and pork. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I don't expect anything. I frankly don't expect. I go in with very low expectations. I think that uh, getting along with Russia is a good thing, but it's possible we won't. I think we're greatly hampered by this whole witch hunt that's going on in the United States. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. President Trump is in Helsinki, Finland. He's going to have a big meeting with Vladimir Putin. There's a lot of stuff on the agenda, and then there's not a lot of stuff on the agenda. The president said point blank that he is setting expectations very low, hoping to make the bar for him to clear very easy. And that means that there aren't concrete things that they hope to accomplish. Trump and, and his staff are trying to make simply being there a victory, simply having conversations and accomplishment. But we know that they're not just going to go sit in a room and look at each other. There are a number <laughs> of items that they are likely going to discuss. Trump in an interview over the weekend suggesting that he would talk about the election interference perpetrated by the Russians during the 2016 election. There are some trade issues that could come up, as well as how Russia and the United States are interacting with Europe. Nations. John Bolton has even said that the meeting is going to be unstructured and we're not looking for any concrete deliverables. There's not going to be any big thing like in North Korea where they had a document signed afterwards. That's right. The Russians were largely ostracized, at least symbolically, from the rest of the Western world whenever they annexed Crimea a few years ago. It was heavily criticized. There were sanctions put in place. At the time, the United States and Europe were acting in agreement that Russia was out of line. They could have sort of languished in that middle area, a large country that still had to do business with the rest of the large economies of the world, but weren't getting invited to the parties and getting included in the niceties of diplomacy. Now having President Trump sit down with Putin, symbolizing some normalcy, some friendship between the two countries would be a departure from that ostracization and moving for Russia back to how it was before they annexed Crimea with little if no long-term fallout for that decision. President Trump is also coming off a big contentious NATO summit. He did an interview with CBS News and he he was asked, who do you identify as the biggest foes globally right now? And he named the European Union. This is back on the trade front. He said, hey, they're doing a lot of stuff to us on trade. Then he mentions Russia. In certain aspects, they're a foe. China is a foe economically. 
the European Union has long been considered a very close friend of the United States. And by long, I mean, since the end of World War II, when all of those countries whether because they already were fighting on the American side or because they had to surrender to the Americans, have been working together. Few have described any members or the European Union as a whole as a foe in in decades. And so have no doubt that President Trump probably caused a little bit of heartburn for members of his party, particularly some of the ones on foreign policy. And it's going to bolster the criticism that we're going to hear from Democrats in the next week. You know, there was a time when you didn't criticize your own country or your own president on foreign soil. That stopped really during the Obama administration and likely to see it again now. And calling the European Union a foe while sitting down with Europe is going to be a point that Democrats are going to be hammering, I'm sure, for the next week. You had mentioned that the uh, indictments of 12 Russian military intelligence agencies was going to be a topic of discussion between President Trump and Vladimir Putin. The Russians were using really easy phishing malware things. You know, I'll send you an email, click on the link, and then boom, we're in your system. John Podesta did the whole thing to himself, basically. (laughs) He clicked that link and tech experts tell people all the time, don't click on suspicious links. And and he did it. And that's how they got in. Two lessons that all of the world or America should take from this incident. First, don't click on any links. And second, don't write anything in your email. You wouldn't want everyone to be able to read. (laughs) Uh, But that's right. The indictment really detailed, some of which we already knew, but the process in which Russian operatives went in and stole information, particularly from Democrats. They didn't nefariously, secretly find a backdoor into their server. They sent them an email and got them to click on it, something called spear phishing where they would pretend to be someone else in these communications that then installed malware onto their computers. President Trump has criticized the Democrats for not turning over their server, although it wasn't like they found some back door into the server. Uh, They went in kind of through a side door, a front door even, perhaps. But the indictment, part of the Mueller investigation, was more indictments. The criticism from the president and his allies that it's not finding anything, it's direct refuted in this process where we see them yet again bringing charges and detailing crimes that were committed by foreign operatives. The president, Rudy Giuliani, has said there's no Americans attached to this and they're using this as a claim of victory. But the investigation, the Mueller investigation is ongoing still. And a lot of people still seem to believe that there will be something related to Americans involved in all of this. Even in, in these indictments, they said Americans that were talking to these people didn't know they were Russians. But something still seems like something else is going to drop. Let's consider for a moment that the FBI has indicted foreign nationals for interfering with the U.S. election system. And we're supposed to believe that there's nothing to see here or that that's not a victory. I mean, these are crimes that were perpetuated on the American people and the individuals responsible for them have been named and indicted. We do know that many of the communications, including for senior Trump friends or advisors, people who were not, maybe not necessarily employed by the campaign, but talking to the president during the campaign were in communications, maybe unknowingly with some of these hackers. There were crimes here. There is something to see here. The Mueller investigation has found something. So to say that there's nothing there uh, would be patently false. Well, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the big meeting. And I think President Trump has really characterized it well. He's going to ask Putin about it and Putin's going to deny it. And what is he going to do at the table, you know, confront him even more? 
This is just not going to happen. So Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you want to try slinging with us? What? Yeah, we're slingers. Yeah, we love the options, the freedom. Without all the commitments. Oh. Yes. I, I don't yeah. think. Joining us now is Rob yeah. Pigararo, tech writer for USA Today Tech and Yahoo Finance. So we're going to talk about uh, cord cutting. <laughs> as soon as all these great services came up, I think I kind of went the other way. I, I had my cable and satellite stuff still going. I added Netflix. I added Hulu. You know, I think I just added more things than not. But Hollywood loves you. Right, exactly. These services are getting better. They're getting more channels and getting you more stuff that you want. What happened with these price increases and a lot of these popular services? The same economic dynamics are at work there. A lot of content costs more. Uh, sports programming keeps going up and up in price. It can't continue forever, but as long as the this kind of inflation and in, in production costs, licensing fees, whatever, the streaming services aren't going to be immune. I think they are somewhat better positioned to resist this trend and customers are a little better positioned if you're shopping between online services versus the one cable company that serves your your city or county. Yeah, Sling TV, I've seen uh, been seeing a lot of new advertisements for them. They just went up five bucks for their entry level thing to twenty five dollars. DirecTV now is now about 40 bucks. They're all kind of hovering around that $40 mark. What are we looking for? Obviously, they always tell you, well, you got to know what channels you want and what service you want. But a lot of times people want local broadcast programming and then they want all their channels. They really want to mimic as close as possible as you can get to whatever cable or satellite package you can get. This is sort of a trope I see in a lot of commentary about cord cutting that people say, oh, well, you, you have to get Sling TV for this, but oh, then you'd better get this and that and that and that. Well, there is a word for someone who really wants to watch like 60 channels a month, and that's a, that's a happy cable subscriber. For that, the traditional bundle does work well, but a lot of people aren't watching as many. And so the trick is to then sort of go through an inventory of what you actually watch, what you actually miss if you don't get around to watching it, and, and then make your decision. And even then, there's some things, you know, regional sports networks, they remain the, the spottiest availability in online because some of these – the people managing these networks don't seem to realize that cord cutting is a thing. I'm here in D.C. I can't pay to watch Washington Nationals games online because their sports network is in a state of grotesque denial. <laughs> so what are some of the top options that we can look at? How do we keep our costs down with this stuff? First of all, if you want to have the lowest cost, Hulu with live TV, DirecTV TV now, PlayStation View, they provide a good sort of full spectrum equivalent of traditional pay TV. But as a result, they start at $40. Sling TV has their, their entry level package. It used to be $20. Now it's $25. That, I think, make it a lot closer to what a lot of people are looking for. If you have over-the-air reception, you shouldn't look online at all because a lot of cities, you're not going to get all the major networks anyways. CBS, their availability is very limited on online services. But with an antenna you can get for like 30 bucks, that problem goes away. You have to look at what things are you already going to pay for. If, if Amazon Prime is part of your life, then I would say lean on that. And I don't even think of that as a programming cost so much because realistically, the value I get out of that is the, the free two-day shipping. And, and now I guess getting uh, groceries for a little less at Whole Foods. Right. It gives you benefits on multiple fronts. With services such as Hulu's live TV option, 
Does that connect you to people locally? How does that live TV thing work? Keyword here is linear. As long as you've got a linear service where you're picking shows off the grid, hopefully a much better design interface than what's on the average cable box. It's things that you're looking at things on a schedule, not, oh, here's what I can watch there last night. That's what you want. And that's where the availability can be a little bit limited, like I said, with local TV, with sports networks. I think that's going to get fixed over time because the market is going in one way. People are not buying the traditional cable package anymore. The networks that are holding out on this are going to have to get over that because that's where their viewers are going. As you said, you know, sports channels are increasingly getting more expensive. Beyond that, you know, people are developing a lot of new streaming options. You know, Disney's going to eventually get their streaming option going. ESPN Go or, you know, very specific sports things going. Is there one of these bundles that we can get that kind of wraps them all together? At least which is the best option that we can look for? I've been paying for Sling TV since it was, I guess, for the first six months or so, I got it for 15 bucks because T-Mobile had a discount deal. I think that's a pretty good bundle. I wish they had apps on a few more devices. Like if they had an app for TiVo, then I can install it on my TiVo and not have to switch inputs all the time. YouTube TV has got a good bundle. They have the advantage of being available on pretty much anything that has YouTube app on it. Hulu, you have the advantage of Hulu's own content, so that's a little bit of a bonus there. Otherwise, unfortunately, a lot of it you sort of need to go through and either have a mental or a real spreadsheet and say, these are the channels I want. And then you have to go through. And here's where I wish all these services would make it easier to, to see what is available in your area. Like YouTube TV is terrible. You have to actually be where you want to watch TV. If you want to shop for YouTube TV from across the country, you can. It'll show you the channels that are available in San Francisco or whatever, but not in New York or D.C. or wherever you actually live. How is the cancellation policies with a lot of these things? Because I know, you know, cable satellite, you're you're screwed, basically. They make it very easy to go on and off to ramp up or down to different tiers. That's great. It means you, you not only have a choice of services, you keep that choice of services. You know, you could say, well... I can use Comcast or DirecTV or Dish Network, but once you sign up with one of those, you're on the hook for a contract and you can no longer shop around unless you want to eat an early termination fee. Online, you don't have that. That's a great advance right there. That's Rob Pigararo, tech writer for Yahoo Finance and USA Today Tech. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. When we first started out at WeWork, we were 10 people in crammed into a teeny office, and now we're 30 people spread out across two beautiful offices. Then on top of that, you have all of the common shared space, right? So you have kitchens and booths and phone booths. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to talk about this new policy by a company called WeWork. There's a new trend with a lot of companies to make positive changes in their structure for better environmental impacts. Starbucks, American Airlines, they're all banning the straws. We did a story on that. So it's all about reducing your footprint on the environment. Enter WeWork now. What are they doing with their business? WeWork is a startup and they employ 6,000 people globally. And they made an announcement this week that they're no longer going to be expensing meals that include meat. They won't pay for any red meat, poultry, or pork at any WeWork events. And this was all detailed in an email to employees ahead of the firm's upcoming internal summer camp retreat. So there wouldn't be any hot dogs or hamburgers. Specifically in this memo, the owner or co-founder of WeWork, Miguel McKelvey, said, if we don't serve meat at our annual summer retreat, we can save an estimated 10,000 animals just in those three days. On the face of it, it's not a big deal. It's a company instituting some type of vegetarian policy. We want to reduce the impact on the environment. But 
let's talk about what WeWork is as a company. What do they do? They're a tech startup. And basically what they do is WeWork does all the legwork. They do the research and they do the buying and leasing of these floors of office suites in really nice, well-maintained high rises in very expensive cities, New York, London, Tokyo, Los Angeles, San Francisco, anywhere that someone like you or I would want to rent office space but can't afford they do all the hard stuff, decorate it and get it set up so that we can come in and pay basically just a nominal rent fee to use the space. But there's a lot of problems that kind of run into it. You know, they say that you can still bring your own food in if you want. They're not going to put limits on that. Let's say you're like a salesperson or something and you are trying to pitch this to a big startup with a couple hundred employees maybe or something like that. You're the salesperson. You're trying to woo people and it's like, I'm going to pay for dinner and have all these guys come. But please order the broccoli. Yeah, order the broccoli only. <laughs> I think someone even said, I got to watch them while they're ordering Brussels sprouts. You know, the easiest way to spruce up those Brussels sprouts is throwing bacon on them. Right. So it's just kind of a funny thing that salespeople, their own employees might get caught up in. Well, some of the problem is that WeWork's policy has been called pretty incoherent. Like it bans chicken, it bans turkey, but it doesn't ban eggs. And there are claims that eggs cause just as much of environmental damage. The claim that this is environmentally based is a little bit suspect. It's going to affect their travel and expense policies. They also have this little honesty market thing, which is just a little couple of refrigerators with drinks and snacks and things like that. We have one of those at our building here. Sometimes there's some nice little sandwiches in there, you know, like a chicken sandwich or mm -hmm. chicken pesto salad or something like that. You know, things that you might want to eat. All those things would be gone. You've been actually to a WeWork office space before. They're kind of simulating a culture of a big tech company. You know, it's very clean, cool artwork and different things like that. What was it like in a WeWork space? The one that I went to was in Hollywood, right off of Sunset Boulevard. And it looked like I had stepped into an Urban Outfitters. There were a lot of like cool couches and really cool looking people typing into their MacBooks. On the wall was like these big giant decals that said hashtag success and neon lights with like uh, words that said swag and hustle. Things like that. So uh, I felt very uncool being right. in there, but I could see the appeal of getting your work done in a place like that. There's a lot of benefits to working in places like this because they do, like you said, they absorb all the re real estate costs so you can just come in and work and not have to worry about any of that not stuff. Not just real estate costs, Oscar. They absorb all of the electrical costs. They absorb all of the right. upkeep maintenance costs. They, they provide coffee, water, uh, some snacks that are for free, supplies, all those things that right. go into creating an office space that you don't even Yeah, consider. you just need to show up and work, basically. We looked into it real quickly because our closest WeWork potential space, if we were doing the Daily Dive business, is in Burbank, California. They have fresh fruit water every day. Mm -hmm. So they have jugs of uh, cut up fruit I and water. iHeart doesn't give us that. They, give, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> High-speed internet printing, you know, business class printer, which is Really cool office supplies, paper shredders, micro roasted coffee machines, which I heart does cool. give us that. Well, we have a machine, but <laughs> it's not like this one. So let's say it's just the two of us. We need space to do research and, and all that stuff. How much would it be to rent an office for two people? So for you and me to share a very small two person office space in Burbank, California, it would be between $1,270 to $1,800 a month. That's a lot. And I'm not getting any meat or, or chicken for it. No meat or bacon, Oscar. <laughs> well, I mean, there's this is a, a trend. A lot of companies are doing this. I expect to see more of these kinds of things. Maybe not so much in, in this sense, but definitely trying to reduce the environmental impact. Thanks, Miranda. Thank you.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.